Welcome to the Perfectly Integrated Podcast, hosted by Matt Ackerman, where we show the power of teamwork in wealth management. Now, on to the show. Great ideas are so fascinating to me. Where do they begin? How do you convince someone it can work? And how do you turn a spark into a fire, into an inferno? But when that great idea is also something that people really need, when it's more than an idea, it's a necessity, that's when I really get fascinated. Today, we're going to talk about one of those ideas. Welcome back to Perfectly Integrated. I'm your host, Matt Ackerman. And today, we're talking about Integrated's lifetime income model, an idea so terrific, it deserves its own episode. And today, I'm excited to be joined by the architect of that idea, Phil Lipinski, the co-founder of Wealth Conductor and an early advocate of this amazing idea. And that's Ray Lucas, the Senior Vice President of Financial Planning and Training at Integrated Partners. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Hey, Matt. Hey. So, Ray, I'm going to start with you. You and I have had a lot of conversations about the lifetime income model. In a nutshell, what is the lifetime income model? What is the lifetime income model? Well, in the simplest of terms, Matt, I guess the way to look at it, it is uh, at least different retirement income distribution strategy that's out there in the industry. For years, most of our advisors and most of the clients, if they were reading articles, heard about this 4% rule, which is basically how much money you can take out of your accumulated wealth. And for a lot of reasons we may delve into later, that and that theory's kind of gone out the window. So what we've created, obviously, with the idea of man behind us here, is we've created this sequenced, if you will, time-released strategy that instead of managing your portfolio as one large pool of money, it's actually broken up into segments that are invested based upon the time that the money is available to work for your clients. And we put all the pieces back together and you've got a portfolio that's still broadly diversified, but you've created the hierarchy of where you're going to take your income from over retirement. Phil, I'm just fascinated by this because I think at its core, what the lifetime income model does is it solves a problem. There's so many folks that work so hard on accumulation of wealth that they don't think about what happens when you reach retirement. How are you going to turn this accumulation into income so that you can live well for what, 30 sometimes 40 years of retirement, if you do this right. So Phil, where did this amazing idea come from? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when Ray said the 4% rule is, is antiquated. What's really surprising to me, if you will, Dennis Gallant with Gallant Research did a survey a couple of years ago that showed that 80% of advisors today still use that old 4% rule. Today's retirees, I always say it's not your dad's Oldsmobile because today's retirees have a very different situation than their parents did. So when their parents retired, there were pensions, there were strong faith in Social Security and the future of it. And so the investments were covering more of the discretionary needs of the client. And now that's reversed. Plus, a lot of advisors are still applying accumulation strategies when they're in the distribution phase and, and they don't realize what a mistake that could be. So how it happened with me is I had a, a well, maybe 10 or 15 clients back in the 80s that were offered an early retirement incentive by their employer. And so they wanted to know if they could take it and they didn't want to retire, but they were younger than normal retirement age. And so once we did the analysis and could determine or did determine that they had enough to retire, then their next question was, well, how do we convert this pot of money that we're being given 
into income because our pension is going to be greatly reduced because we're going out early and we're not even old enough to start collecting Social Security yet. And I said, gee, I don't know. I've been an accumulation person. I haven't really thought about distribution. So I started doing some research, started going to presentations, and all I heard was the same thing over and over where uh, a mutual fund representative would come in and say, look, here's client A, and they had all their money in the bank. Here's client B that put their money in our mutual fund. They both took the same income and look at the end of 10 years, how much better client B was by using our funds. And they would even show a 10-year period of time where there was a loss during that 10-year period. And they still came out ahead. But what was interesting to me was that they always showed a loss somewhere in the middle of that 10 years or the end of 10 years. They never picked a 10-year period that started with a loss. So I said, well, that seems odd. I wonder what would happen if you did start with a loss. So I went into my little Ibbotson yearbook and found a 10-year period, which back then was fairly recent. It was 1973 through 1982, and it started with a loss, very similar to the 2000 bear market, and found that you know, just applying that 4% rule that was golden, that at the end of two years, a person's portfolio would have dropped 50% because of those losses and the income they were taking. And I thought, man, what retiree would have the courage to stay in that portfolio and have the faith that the market is going to take care of them. And when they've lost half their money, just two years into their retirement. So I guess what was going through my mind was, we've got to have growth. We've got to have opportunity in the portfolio. So how do we best combine opportunities into one strategy and then not worry about I'm drawing income during a market downturn? Because with the strategy, you're always drawing income from a place or an investment or an account that has no market risk. The rest of the money then is reinvested as Ray described in multiple portfolios that will be used systematically along the way. But once they're needed for income, they're converted while the rest of the remaining money continues to reinvest. And then that way, it doesn't matter whether they start at the, at the beginning of a bull market or a bear market, because the money that has market exposures is long-term money. It's so amazing to me because you said two very key words there, and that's courage and faith. And I think good ideas require a lot of courage and a lot of faith, that, that light bulb too. Ray, it's probably the 1980s. You hear about this idea for the first time. Were you skeptical? I mean, you, you needed some faith here too in order to take what was kind of the rule, that 4% rule, and try something a little different. Yeah, I was, it was probably the late 80s, just to put it in perspective. Actually, I'm not that old, Matt, maybe early 90s. This idea came to the table because, uh, and the way that Phil and I met, just the 30-second history, is we, Paul Sagany, the president of the firm, and myself found ourselves together at a small broker dealer a long time ago, and Phil was already there, and he was the one who introduced this idea to the field force. And I think, um, speaking selfishly for myself, I heard it the first time and I, I wasn't nervous. I wasn't scared. As a matter of fact, it just intuitively made so much sense to me. We use a term around here at, at Integrated and where we, we think our planning is elegant in its simplicity. And I think one of, the, one of the founding foundations of what we do, obviously, is the lifetime income model. And when you reduce it for all the work that, put, that Phil put into it to get where we are, it truly is, if you just take a deep breath, look at it, Give yourself a few minutes to digest it. It is elegant in its simplicity and it intuitively just simply makes sense. So 
as opposed to being nervous about something new, it was sort of, it was just the opposite. It was like, oh my gosh, this is a great idea to embrace and run with. And that's exactly what we did organizationally. You know, and what was interesting, Matt, was when I first developed the very first client I was going to test on it, I had a lot of clients that were aerospace engineers. So I, I knew that technically he would try to blow it up. And he was a very savvy investor. And he saw it and basically said, that makes perfect sense. Can you do that with my money? And I said, absolutely. In fact, yours will be the first one that I'll be trying this on. And he wasn't the least bit concerned. But the bigger firm that Ray's talking about, where Ray and Paul and I met, when they saw the model, I mean, they basically said to me, when you talk about skepticism, they said, have you tested this model? And I said, well, not live. I've got, it's fairly new. And, they, and I said, but I did have my Ibbotson yearbook and I did a lot of research. And they said, Phil, please don't be offended by this, but I'm not sure we can roll out nationally a model that we say is tested, self-tested by a Polish guy in Denver. Would you care if we took it to a, a place that does professional testing and I said, yeah, go ahead. I'd kind of like to know, but now this was maybe 10 years after I had been using it in my practice and I was really panicky thinking, what if they come back and say, this thing is garbage. It, it's not going to work. Well, sure enough, they came back and said, our source it was called Rogers and Casey at that time, did the back testing on this and they found it highly reliable. And that was when Ray, to his credit, coined the word, the, the focus of this model is really not chasing returns and, and the, the return on investment, but it's a new definition of that ROI, and we should be focusing on the reliability of income. And that term stuck, and it's being used. It's in the bylines of every presentation, and Ray should get a share of every dime that comes off of this model. I'm still waiting for those residuals, by the way. Yeah. So. Well, me too. <laughs> but just kind of building some more in the background, Matt, with Phil, the organization that we're all part of embraced Phil's idea to the extent that even Phil himself were creating, remember the old SDI meetings? He created strategic distribution institutes that we would gather. We gathered out in Colorado Springs one time, is the one I remember. And, and I think Derek Chesley, who's in our organization, and myself came out. And that's where this all kind, kind of came together because Phil, again, it wasn't dictatorial at all. It was like, everybody bring your best ideas with you because we're trying to, we're trying to build this whole story. And that's where I remember taking my, my uh, white easel and, and my marker and uh, put up my accumulation phase as rich ROI means return on investment and distribution means reliability of income. So I, I appreciate Phil mentioning that because it's, as we all steal the best practices that we can find in our industry, that's been taken and run with by a hundred different organizations. Yeah, I, I appreciate uh, that opportunity to even present that idea to fill in the organization. Do I get my lunch now for giving you credit or? Yeah, yeah, for life, I will. I, you can drive through the McDonald's 99 cent window. I got you covered, dude. <laughs> that be a long <laughs> life. <laughs> so... The idea has legs. It's got, it's been tested now. Ray, what was it like when you brought this to your first client though? What was the reception like from them? Did, did they get it the way the aerospace engineers did that, that Phil talked about? I had the advantage of obviously having built a bit of a clientele and at the, the early adopters are the ones that were on the cusp of entering retirement. There's one gentleman who comes to mind who was probably my 
the nearest and dearest client who unfortunately passed away uh, a couple of years ago. But what was interesting as well as his background is he was a accounting and finance guy. He was a controller. So not an engineer, but a finance guy. And we walked him through that and he was very analytic, not only in what he did for a living, but how we ran his own finances. He was always one of these guys, always prepared for our annual reviews. I do my thing and he'd do his thing. And when I first ran him through the earlier version of what is now the lifetime income model software, he was just embraced it. He was all over it. He says, this makes all kinds of sense in the world because he obviously we, clients run their own accounts and keep an eye on it. But the fact that psychologically he could tie certain pools of money to a specific time horizon, again, just made all the sense in the world. And I don't want to jump too far ahead in that, but I think the other thing that, that helped is with his background, it also gave me a little bit of an insight into the fact that, you know, Phil mentioned how engineers, you know, got it. The other thing that led to a much greater opportunity here at Integrated is you take an analytic like a, an accountant or a CPA. That's another whole story because the same logic, the same thought process, they embrace it. And it, it's one of the reasons that I think we've had so much success here at Integrated with penetrating the CPA relationship market because we have a process that when they look at it, it's measurable, it's conservative, and it, again, it just intuitively makes sense for those who can look at it. It, it, it should almost, if it doesn't intuitively make sense, it's almost not worth pursuing with somebody because it's almost too hard a hurdle to get them to, to jump over. But that's usually not the case because, in fact, it, it just, again, it's just so easy to, to follow the logic that it, it becomes just a natural progression in the conversation. At this point in your life, as you transition into retirement, relative to your money, what's more important to you, the return on your investment or the reliability of your income? Because you can't have both simultaneously in a portfolio. And 99% of the pre-retirees will say, well, yeah, at this point, I think the reliability of my income is much more important than the return on the investment. So it, it sets the stage properly because with this model, you're escrowing certain amounts of money into places that are not gonna get a very good rate of return. But what they're doing is they're creating the buffer. They're, they're supplying the income while the rest of the money has the market opportunities. So as, as soon as a client says, gee, my neighbor got so much more return on my on his portfolio than I am on mine, it's easy to come back and say, well, don't you remember that discussion we had early on where you told me that the reliability of income was your key goal? Now you're telling me that the return on your investment is your key goal. Do you want me to re, you know, redo the strategy and we'll chase returns, but then we'll have to give up that reliability of income? And virtually everybody says, oh man, I've, I forgot the logic of it. It made so much sense at the time. And thanks for reminding me. And so they stay on course. So Phil, was there a tipping point for all this? It gets tested. It gets trusted by great advisors. When did you know, wow, we, we have something really amazing here. This is really catching fire. You know, I think a, a, a tipping point, obviously the first tipping point was when the aerospace engineer said, this is great. And, and I had a lot of confidence in, in him and his abilities. But when the company that that Ray and I were with, they came to me and said, I mean, they'd heard about this model and they wanted to, in, in their testing of it, they also were concerned, you know, is this just a personality thing? Is this something that, that that's unique to Phil and his relationship with his clients or is it transferable on a larger scale? 
So at that time, they said to me, because I was an advisor, a producer for this company, and they said, how would you like to roll this idea out in your Denver office? You have a lot of advisors. At that time, we had 35 advisors and see if it works as well with them as it did with you. I basically said, so you want me to be like a manager? And they said, yeah. And I said, gee, that's why I came into this business because I have no respect for managers. I think I would be a horrible manager. But in the spirit of trying to make this thing work, let's give it a a try. Well, and this was a fairly long try. I mean, it was over a three-year period of time. But over that three-year period of time, we tripled the productivity of the office. So the 35 advisors were able to communicate it just as effectively, some even more effectively, than I was within our own practice. And then that's when they said, we need to take this thing nationally. That was a big turning point in in my mind, that it it did have legs beyond just what I did with my own clients. Right. Fast forward now to 2021. How big is the lifetime income model today for Integrate? Oh, it's been one of our core offerings. Not only do our advisors use it, but I, I kind of planted to see 10 minutes ago talking about the interest in CPAs. I should probably tell you, which might help in, in, in my embracing it so much. My background is undergrad in accounting and finance. So the, the logic of the numbers always made sense to me. But as we were really growing out, uh, integrated over the last 20 years or so, and then with the ability of CPAs to get licensed, and as we built out what is our model, which is building an organization that actualizes formalized relationships with CPAs to help uh, deliver warm leads and, and referrals to our advisors, one of the core strategies I walk all of our CPAs through, you know, John Pastore and I, at least in the first 20 years, met every single CPA on live and in person. We weren't Zooming back then. And I was the guy who got to walk everybody through what our skill sets and capabilities were. And I, I would go on record that saying that the reason we've built out the professional partners program, in particular our CPA program with such success is that probably two out of three of the early adopters on the CPA side of things embrace the program. I don't know if you're looking for numbers to quantify our success either, but we, three years ago, in anticipation of, we we wanted to build models that matched up to to the lifetime income model. It's very hard to follow this logic, and Phil's organization did something similar. But here we are 20 years later, Phil close to 30 years later, with the idea, the concept, the approach. We have the language. We have the belief system. We have the software to quantify numbers. But we never really had investment solutions that were designed to say, okay, I have a target time horizon of 10 to 15 years. I need you to get me a 5% rate of return with the highest probability of success. Well, there's never been really models designed or investments designed specifically with that in mind. We tasked our chief investment officer about four years ago with that goal, and we rolled out in 18 a whole series of portfolios specifically designed to populate our lifetime income model. And we went from zero dollars to, as I sit here today, I think we're dancing around 1.2 billion with a B that we've raised in three years. So if somebody needs to know, is there a rationale? Is there a success? Is there an incentive for adopting this kind of process? I think if you need numbers, they're, they're right there on the table. It's been a huge part of the integrated story. 
Phil, I, I'm a communications major. I wasn't uh, I wasn't an accounting or, or <laughs> economics person either. And I always say the success of something, if it can be explained in a sentence or two, that's when you know you really have a great idea. And I think that's what always makes the lifetime income model stand out to me is I can explain it to my dad or my wife in a very simple way and they get it. And I think that's really a tribute to what you guys have, what you really built here, Phil. It's incredible. So Phil, looking back now, at an idea that comes up, what, 35 some odd years ago for you, is there anything you'd have done differently? Is there anything you could change in hindsight if you could get in your DeLorean and travel back in time and, and, and do this all over again? Is there anything you'd change? Yeah, I'd patent it. Uh, <laughs> so that, that was probably the, the biggest uh, mistake that I made was not put some kind of protection around it because there's a lot of versions of it out there. I mean, it's a concept that's kind of getting some legs. And there are a, a number of different ways, I guess, that you can implement the model itself. But the whole compartmentalization of money, I mean, people's minds think that way. And, and back in the 80s, I was growing, I, I was doing planning for people who you know, were retiring at that time. They grew up in the Depression. So they really, they saw as children, their parents or their parents' friends lose money with bad investments. So they really knew they couldn't afford to be taking a lot of risk, but they liked the fact that we had blocks of money that were designated for different periods of time during their life. It was kind of like the cookie jars, and they knew that cookie jar that had the entertainment money in it, if it was empty, then we weren't going to go to a movie this weekend. And so they're kind of programmed in that manner. And we even created a, a, like a little briefcase for clients that we put the name of the model on the outside of it. And then we had separate folders inside of it. And we just said, think of your money as like, it's in little buckets here. So we'd have bucket one, bucket two, bucket three. And they would come to every review meeting. Cause I said, then as you get your statements, just stick them in the appropriate file, bring your little lunchbox with you with all the files in it. But referrals that would come in say, I don't know what you did for Charlie and his wife, but I want one of those bucket plans. And so it, it really resonated. And the only thing that was missing at the time, which thinking would I've done anything differently, is it's one thing to present it, have a client buy into it, and then implement it. But then retirees are expecting you to stay on top of it because now you've got multiple accounts that you've created for them. And they want to know, how is my plan doing? Because still today, retirees' biggest fear is running out of money and becoming dependent on their children or the government to take care of them. So they want constant monitoring. And that's the big addition that we made in this latest version. I, I was fortunate enough to meet up with my two co-founders, Cheryl O'Connor and Tom O'Connor, and they had the wisdom to see that, that that, even though there were other, if you will, bucket models out there, none of them had any kind of ongoing monitoring and management it would be meaningful to an advisor and their clients. Hey, Matt, if I can jump in too, it's funny. To this day, I've always told our other advisors that I'm the guy who reads all these white papers when they come out. And in all seriousness, last night, I was reading a 32-page white paper that one of our other advisors sent me on another organization's version of, of bucket investing. The good news is in their research is everything that Phil's talked about, that where the time release segmenting aspect really comes into play is especially, and, and I would highlight this given the fact where we're sitting, if we're at all time highs, the last thing you want to do is enter retirement 
stepping into a, either the, the peak or in the middle of a down market, because that's where you're going to exacerbate your problems with sequence return risk. The missing piece of a lot of these other white papers is it's strictly on the academic side. It's the science side, which is we're going to use these funds instead of these funds. But what Phil and his organization have done is they've merged, and this is the language I use when I talk to people, we've merged the science and the art, and the science being the actual segmented time release. But the art of this is, and I want to highlight this for our advisors, and that is you're in the process. You're involved all the time. This is not turnkey because the art of this is Phil's organization has found a blend, which is with their ability to help you monitor whether you are ahead of the curve, on plan, ahead of plan, you as the advisor have to be intimately involved because if you make enough money in segment four, if you've achieved your goals in 17 years and you still have a three-year run rate, de-risk the portfolio, meaning take some money off the table and don't put it at risk, or at least give the client that choice. But you can even increase the probability of success by de-risking those portfolios. So for those who think that this, uh, any of these segmented time release strategies are set and forget it, it's not. It's the blend of both, the science of the tool behind it and the art, which is what Phil's already brought to the table with his monitoring. But more importantly, you, the advisor, doing the reviews, having the relationship and making investment decisions on behalf of the client. You know, it's interesting, Ray, because when I do training with advisors, now having used the model for almost 40 years, they ask me questions like, well, how is your bucket four doing today? The standard answer is, well, my bucket four doesn't look anything like it did when we started the plan because the client's life doesn't look anything like it did or like we projected it would look like 25, 30 years ago. So I always told clients that as, as nice as this looks and as accurate as this looks, by the time you get to the end of the hall and on the elevator, your plan's going to be out of date. And that's why it's critical that we monitor this thing because tax laws are going to change, the economy's going to change, and probably more importantly than those two combined, your needs are going to change. And there are things that are going to happen. We tried to anticipate as many as we could, but virtually every retiree runs into situations along the way that we had not anticipated. And so this model has the ability to quickly adjust to those and kind of re redesign itself with that. Well, obviously with the advisor involved to adapt to those changes, or if a client comes to you and says, Hey, we suddenly have an opportunity or a need to help our son out with a new business that he's trying to start. What if I took 100000 out of my portfolio and gave it to him? Can I do that? Well, we can easily determine what impact is that going to have on their plan. And there were situations where I had to be the one, me, the advisor, had to be the one to communicate to the son, I'm sorry, but mom and dad just can't afford to do that. But the important thing was it wasn't mom and dad saying no to the child. It was that dirty, rotten financial advisor saying no to the child. So the parent-child relationship stayed intact, but without the advisor being involved, the parents probably would have written the, the child that check without realizing the long-term impact, that negative impact that would have had on their own plan. Gentlemen, this was really just an amazing conversation. I got to hear about art, science, 
elegant simplicity, all from the mind of a Polish guy from Denver, Colorado. So really just great guys. Thank you both. My last question or podcast always comes from my nine-year-old son, CJ. I told CJ about the lifetime income model and how it helps people in retirement. So CJ asked, okay, what do you want to do when you retire? What's your dream retirement? His dream retirement, he says, is he wants to go to every amusement park around the world, go on all the best roller coasters. So, Phil, I'll start with you. What is your dream retirement? Yeah, I, I mean, my dream would be to take him to every amusement park. Maybe my dream is to actually retire someday. So seven years ago, I, I, I sold my practice thinking now it's retirement and I'm going to spend a couple of years developing this, this new version of the segmented strategy. And that's where I met Tom and Cheryl and, and we formed Wealth Conductor. But seven years later, I'm spending as, nearly as much time doing this as I was in my own personal practice. So my dream is still to retire. Not not sure what I'll be doing. How about you, Ray? What do you want to do when you retire? I'll give you a, a, two quick answers. Number one, the first client I ever met on a referral, his first name's Charlie. And he has been a client of mine since 1987, so it's 34 years. And I met him when he was in his 20s, and he's either two or three or four years away from retirement. I think it would be kind of, look for the right word, but yeah, I think maybe I'll, I don't want to scare people, or particularly Paul on the call here, but I think, I don't think I'm retiring until I retire Charlie. 61 or 62 right now, but I think it would be kind of a, a symmetrical practice if my first client is a client I retired with. So we'll see how that plays out. Selfishly, the one thing I always wanted to do, I wanted to do it with my father, and that never happened, but I want to get a convertible and uh, leave Chicago and drive Route 66 all the way to the West Coast. And the main reason I've never done that is the, I want to stop at every tacky Americana spot along the way. And even a two-week vacation isn't enough time to do that. So once the retirement has been checked, that's an open-ended trip that I'll send you tacky pictures from every place along the way. One of my very first clients, or not my first clients, but one of the aerospace engineers who had done all of his own planning, ran all of his own spreadsheets, he came in and met me for the first time, he and his wife, and his projections had shown that he still needed to work another four or five years. So I ran my analysis using the, the segmented approach, and I said, you know what, my numbers are saying you could retire right now. And so he did. And four years later, he developed a very rare type of cancer and died within six months. And after he died, I met with the wife and the attorney, and we were redoing her legal work. And on the way out, she said, I want to thank you, Phil. And I said, well, I always go to the attorney with the surviving family and make sure the, the legal affairs are still right. She goes, no, that's not what I want to thank you for. I don't know if you remember, Phil, but Stan didn't think he could retire. And he thought he was going to have to work another four or five years. And had he listened to himself instead of you, he would have died at work. And we would not have taken all the trips we took. I would not have the memories that I now have for the rest of my life and she said, I can't have Stan back, but you created memories for me with your analysis and your model that make me grateful to you for the rest of my life. And that's the power that, that this has just from an emotional standpoint. That is a great way to 
wrap up this conversation. I thank you guys both. And I really do thank you for all the work you've done with clients and with this model because it has given people time. And that's really a currency that's more valuable than money is getting that time and that time you spend with folks. So thank you both very much. Thanks for joining us today on Perfectly Integrated. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Matt. Content in this material is for general information only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Integrated Partners, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from LPL Financial. Phil Labinsky is the founder and head of retirement at Wealth Conductor and is a separate entity and not affiliated with Integrated Partners and LPL Financial.